0: What I want to talk about is the trials ahead that the church is going to be facing as a result of the new administration, the dangerous world in which we live, certain things we as a church are going to have to face, some things that we are facing already that might prove to be quite unpleasant. When I look at what happened in the last few months in the United States, and first of all I want to say parenthetically that I am not a Republican. I am not a member of Ross Perot's organization, and I am not a Democrat. If you are a Democrat or a Republican, uh, that's your business. I believe Jesus Christ of Nazareth was completely apolitical, and I believe the Bible tells us that we are to come out of this world, and that this world, with its institutions, including its political organizations, its educational institutions, and all the various organizations, political and religious, are of this world and the god of this world is not the true god of the bible but it tells us very clearly the god of this world is satan the devil it is satan's world it is not god's world there are satan's principles or the lack of them at work and not god's principles here we are in a world with the united states tottering on its last legs economically. We are absolutely broke as a nation. If you operated your business the way this government operates its business, you would have declared bankruptcy a long time ago. Millions of Americans out of work, problems all over the world. Now, we can talk about all the problems in the world real quickly. They're the things you read about every single week. You get a USNWR, Time Magazine, or watch your weekly newscasts. The man who was elected to the White House, six out of ten Americans didn't want him there four out of ten did and he's there anyway now that he has taken office I am amazed I'm not only amazed I'm outraged and I am using biblical prophecies to back up what I want to say to you today about the fact that this gentleman who went to a church service hours before he was inaugurated in which ceremony he put one hand on the Bible and raised the other hand to heaven and said so help me God and he has stirred up the biggest flap the biggest national debate almost of decades Because the very first thing he wants to do is not deal with taxes, not deal with the economy, not deal with the millions of Americans that are out of jobs, not deal with taking from the rich and giving to the middle class and the poor, not deal with the sagging infrastructure, not deal with any of the problems I've mentioned to you, not the least of which is the burgeoning powers of Germany and Japan and the debate raging there over their post-war constitutions that will begin to allow them to send troops abroad to become the policeman of the world, to replace. The United States, as the only remaining superpower and the policeman of the world. Here we are with these gigantic deficits and so many gigantic issues that should be on President Bill Clinton's plate. And instead, he has created a huge furor over gays and lesbians in the military. And so here is the greatest nation on the face of the earth in bitter acrimony in arguments all the way to the highest officials in the land, there are hundreds of television and radio call-in talk shows that are exacerbating and gnawing and chewing on this issue every single morning, noon, and night. The other day, one of them was saying, my wife heard it and quoted it to me, why why should we be against gays? God made gays. God made gays. Then God, the kind of a God he worships, is a pretty... Uh, Unfair God, isn't he? He burnt them to a crisp at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says not effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind or gays or any other filthy perverts are ever going to inherit the kingdom of God. But here is this man who knows absolutely zero about the Bible, pretending to tell people from some background of education, some some sort of expertise, because he's a talk show host and you assume that they know something, that God made gays. Well, God did nothing of the sort. I want to show you what God says about gays and what he says about the leadership of the country, and I think maybe it has certain poignant overtones for this current administration. In Isaiah, the very first chapter, here is Isaiah, the prophet to all the nations, not just to Israel, but he does, by analogy, talk about Israel in the very first chapter And it's almost like taking Uncle Sam and taking him by a call to 911 and the paramedics down to the hospital, putting him on the the slab there and having the doctor with a stethoscope show up and begin to analyze how sick is this victim. Here is Uncle Sam, and I believe it does mean our peoples as well as the British peoples and all of Israel. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, chapter 1, verse 2, for the Eternal has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. A stupid ox or a cow knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel does not know. That is a fact. You can say the United States does not know. Now, the people who listen to the Jerry Falwells and the other television evangelists are labeled, with a huge brush today, bigot. In the debates that are raging on all the hosted call-in shows, television and radio, they are always labeled, if they... Talk about the Bible, talk about homosexuality in the light of the Word of God, they're automatically a bigot. Because, you see, now homosexuals, gays and lesbians, are just another minority group in society. And they argue that what two people do in private, between themselves, is nobody else's business. It's not your business, it's not my business, is that right? Remember the very lovely, attractive lady that spoke before the entire Republican convention whose husband gave her AIDS? Yes, the ox, a dumb ox, knows its owner, and the ass is master's crib, but Israel, and you can put there the United States or Great Britain or Australia or South Africa or any other nation you want to mention, does not know, my people, do not consider a sinful nation, a people laden Burdened with iniquity, he talks about drawing sin, as it were, with a cart rope. Like you've got a heavy burden behind you, filled with the sins of the nation, and you're just dragging it down the street. Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the eternal. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. God says in the picture that he gives toward the beginning of the Great Tribulation and the heavenly signs and the day of the Lord, That his wrath is so pent up that he says, I can scarce keep it in. And that his wrath and his vengeance is going to be so terrible that the blood is going to run deep in the streets of Jerusalem to the horse's bridles. I intend to explain, and I wouldn't even want to go into it here. You can read it in print in the privacy of your home because it's simply too grotesque to get into the clinical reasons why. The people who are indulging in sodomy are putting a man-made, in that sense, disease out here for the whole general public to enjoy, which may end up killing as many of us as the black death or the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages and Great Britain in the 16th or the 15th century. Now, probably some at some point in time, some man is going to lead a horse down the, down the aisle and say, I want to marry the horse. Uh, Probably one of these days you're going to hear of a bunch of people who decide we're the American society for uh, the protection of those who love sheep, Uh, because it is so grotesque. I just don't know why, isn't it? Think about it. If gays and lesbians are merely another minority because of a matter of sexual orientation, what if a whole lot of Basque sheepherders and uh, refugees from, you know, Midwestern farms happen to be, you know, like sheep? What are are you going to do with them? They're certainly a smaller minority, and the smaller the minority, the more you want to protect them. This is grotesque, isn't it? Here is a man who ought to be leading the world, and he can't wait to force gays and lesbians into open relationships in our military. At a time when our military needs to be strong. Because if you're not going to trust God, it wouldn't make sense not to trust your military. You better either trust God, or you better trust your military, or you're in really deep trouble. Why should you be stricken anymore, he says in verse 5? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. If the head is government, then it is sick. And the heart, if that's the heartland, or if that's the people out here, the labor force, from the sole of the foot to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, and that's describing the people that should be God's people. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment, and that is an analogy that shows that the ministry should be pointing out those sins, and the mollifying with ointment is the repentance of those sins, and the healing of those terrible wounds that are spiritual in nature, not physical. Your country is desolate. That's what's going to eventually happen. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Now, I want to show you in verse 9 his reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Except the eternal host had left unto us a very small remnant. That's how bad it's going to be. The Bible strongly indicates that only one third of our citizens are going to be left alive by the beginning of the day of the Lord. And it strongly indicates that perhaps after the day of the Lord and at the second coming of Christ, one out of ten Americans will have survived that cataclysmic period of time. Only a tithe of the populations of the United States, of Britain, of all of these other nations, are likely to remain alive. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now, this is God's word. Isaiah is writing long centuries after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with a divine miracle, like a nuclear fire. And the very next verse, he then says, Hear ye the word of the Eternal, you rulers of Sodom. So the leadership, he says, are like the rulers of Sodom. It's like these ultra-liberal weirdos out here in the United States want the kind of orgies that took place in ancient Pompeii. They want the kind of orgies that the ancient Romans indulged in. They want it out in the open. They want to be able to walk down the street, sit down in a restaurant, and let you sit right there eating your steak with the two guys next to you, French kissing. That's what they want, and that's what they're about to get. In one of the parties in Washington, D.C., on the night before the inauguration, one of the inaugural balls, there was a group of these gays and lesbians, and they were saying, here, here, we are queer, and now we're in the White House. And they were saying, hey, hey, we are gay, and now we're in the White House. And they had their placards, and they were demonstrating. The other day, I happened to tune in. and never watched these people, but going by, I saw one of these talk shows, and I'm just about to go out the door. There was some homosexual there, obvious, a simpering, trying to pretend that he was a little girl, lisping his words. Women don't talk that way. Only men that want to imitate other men who think they're imitating women talk that way. I've never met a woman in my life that says, Hi, how are you? <laughs> I never I never in my life have met a woman that talked to me that way. But you meet men. Well, this guy was simpering like this, and he was crying. And he was talking about how his gay lover had died of AIDS in the hospital, and he was sniffing, and, and his mother, I was there in the hospital room, and his mother told me to get out. And the... Camera panned up to that audience, and here was a good looking young blonde girl. Everybody's all American, corn fed, Kansas high school homecoming queen daughter. Good looking blonde girl. Just crying, wiping her eyes. She was in total sympathy with this queer. I mean, this homosexual. <laughs> I'm trying to learn to quit calling him queer. It makes him mad, so I, you know, I. I don't necessarily, and some of them, you know, they'll do you bo- bodily uh, harm if they can. So you got to be careful, but anyway, she was there in great sympathy. And uh, I guess she thought, well, you know, he wouldn't take a second look at me. I'm a good-looking blonde girl. He loves some ugly old man, but that's all right. It's hard to understand, isn't it, the place to which we have come. Now, why does a newly elected president of the United States have to take a giant step straight into the cesspool? It's hard to understand. With all these other issues, with these gigantic problems, not the least of which was his continual exacerbation of the problems in the economy. Did you hear him the other day when somebody finally asked him about the fact that the economy apparently is much better than he said it was? Well, uh, he hen-hawed and looked down and said, We still have a long way to go. And then just that was the end of that answer. But it showed a political cartoon I talked about last week where it showed just the feet of George Bush and he was being hung obviously he was hanging there in his office and the liberal media were pictured down below and it said as a caption "Oh, we're sorry about that George that we we didn't report this when actually the economy turned around back in March sorry for the lynching George but you know that was a big issue wasn't it the economy now the media tells us that the economy actually began to turn around back in March but in the meantime Bush received a lynching, and Clinton is in the White House, our first baby boomer. And instead of going back after he's dead and finding out whether Ike had a thing with his driver in England, this guy admits to about 10 to 12 years of a, of a problem way before he even gets into the White House. Now, if you think that there isn't a decision made somewhere in the privacy of the Clinton bedroom in Little Rock about just who is going to decide what, you better think again. This is compromise in a capital C, compromise in spades, right? Right? This guy's wife knows it all, right? They have had to make some kind of an accommodation, correct? Do you think that he is able to say, Hillary, sit down and shut up? You got another thing coming. The fact that she is moving an office into the west wing of the White House, and the fact that he made a statement, to which I take great exception, to the media that she is going to sit in on cabinet meetings because she, he said, knows a great deal more about that kind of stuff than I do. Now, wait a minute. Think about that for a minute. Either that is a terrible put-down, either he is patting Hillary on her pointed little head, saying, you know, being condescending, saying, well, she knows more about that stuff, haha, than I do, meaning not really. That's one way you can take that in human nuance. Or it means she really does know more about what he calls that stuff, which makes him ignorant and her extremely intelligent, and that she's actually the one that's going to sit in on and kind of rule over cabinet-level meetings. I think the latter is probably closer to the truth. Now we come to the next scripture I want to read in chapter 3 and verse 9. The show of their countenance does witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. What are we doing now? We're saying, Queens, out of the closet, into the bright light of day, wear your uniform, and uh, march off to the Navy, to Marine Corps, as I've said, uh, being sarcastic about it. You can see the day coming when these guys will raise up in a sandbag pillbox and see some handsome German coming toward it and say, I don't want to kill him, I want to kiss him. You know, and they'll say, Charge men. You can just see it. I mean it's unbelievable. You stop to think about that. Hear the word of the eternal, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the oh, I read that. And then in verse uh, nine, they declare their sin as Sodom, they hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they've rewarded evil unto themselves. Say to the righteous, to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. As for my people, it leads directly into that thought, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err, and destroy the way of your paths. You study the time of the judges, the time of the kings of Israel, When there was a bad king like Manasseh that went into all kinds of orgiastic, pagan, sexually oriented religion, including even sacrificing children to Baal, then God destroyed, plagued, caused people to be massively deported, caused people to be killed by the tens of thousands, and Israel suffered. The nation suffered. When there was a good king who restored God's way, like Zedekiah, Hezekiah, And the Restoration under Josiah, where they had the double Passover that one year, God blessed the nation. When the leader was a rotten, filthy, corrupt character, God cursed the nation. I'm saying that Bill Clinton has made the first step into the sewer, and God is angry with this government, with this administration, and therefore with this nation. Now, we we haven't been getting very many of the blessings of God, have we? not weather-wise, not economically. We've had some of the biggest disasters in the history of the country in the homestead situation in Florida and those terrible floods out in the West Coast and so on. And that is an economic bill that is going to be paid, of course, in more red ink for years to come as the government declares an emergency disaster areas and comes up with more, uh, as I say, just printed money that doesn't have any basis in anything. So these prophecies and many others I think portray what is happening right now in the world around us and we as a church are going to have to begin dealing with some of these situations. We're going to have undoubtedly eventually problems among families where youngsters are going to be uh, approached by homosexuals in the military and in the schools. I'm still trying to get hands my hands on what the governor of this state who is a woman Isaiah 312 Uh, is wanting to do in the state educational systems about sex education beginning in kindergarten. I got to see my wonderful little five-and-a-half, nearly, well, six-year-old grandson last night, and we have a little granddaughter about seven-and-a-half or eight months or a little older, and we have a little grandson about five months old. And when I think about some teachers standing up and actually explaining to them what homosexuals do with each other in kindergarten, and explaining to them that this is something you might want to consider as an alternative lifestyle—it's merely a matter of a sexual choice—then I can get so blind furious that I can probably be guilty of a sin because of what I want to do to such a person that would dare to put that into the mind of my grandson. And I've got to ask God, please forgive me for these hostile thoughts I'm thinking, because I'd like to grab a hold of this person and teach him something with a short chunk of two before. And instead of just being, well, just go ahead and just teach my grandkid about what it means to be a homosexual, you know, it just, it galls you. You can understand the scriptures that talk about those in the end generation who are the people who, quote, sigh and cry for all of the abominations around them in society, and that these are the people to whom God is going to look, who are so outraged. And why Jesus said, and I preached a sermon on this a few weeks ago, remember that, Lot's wife, Lot's wife, who was so inured, who had so many calluses rubbed on her conscience, that she loved a filthy, rotten society where sodomy was in the public streets, where they were trying to seize two men, and they had to be handsome men. There aren't any ugly angels, I don't believe. These were angels, but they had manifested themselves as men. Read the 19th chapter of the book of Genesis. And these men wanted to drag them out of Lot's house and assault them, gang rape, right on the steps in the street, right out there in public. And when God narrowly caused that family to escape by blinding those characters, and told her, don't look back, she looked back yearningly and longingly, Missing her home and the bric brac and the familiar things and the streets and the park they used to go to or whatever. You know, you you put your roots down in your little community, your little part of the society, and she loved it. She liked it. She just couldn't stand to leave it. And she was escaping for her life, and God killed her instantly on the spot. Turned her into not only a perpetual witness and a warning, as some people say with pillar of salt, salt was merely a metaphor for that, but the Bible says turned her into a big block of halite. Now, Jesus was not kidding when he said at the very time prior to the end, remember Lot's wife, because that's the way it's going to be in the time before Christ returns to this earth. People so calloused to society, and so inured to what goes on around them, that they don't have a real conscience anymore. Their conscience is not tender. It's covered with huge, thick calluses, and they can't seem to be moved to outrage by the terrible things that are going on. You in your lifetime, if you've watched very much TV or gone to many movies at all, have witnessed by now thousands upon thousands of murders. You have seen in your lifetime thousands upon thousands of raw sex scenes. I turn away from TV even when somebody is kissing, when the leading man is kissing the woman anymore because to me, way back when I grew up in high school a kiss was a kiss. It wasn't looking like somebody eating an apple. I can't stand it when they got their mouth open about that far and they got the other person's jaw in there. I just cannot handle it. It makes me personally want to vomit. That that is not something I want to watch. I'll comment about it to my wife and I'll get up and disgust and I'm going in there to read and, of course, you'll turn a channel. I'm not saying she continues. She feels the same way I do about it. It's, it's ugly beyond belief. And these are the values out here today. Let's notice 1 Corinthians 12. It concerns spiritual gifts. And he reminds them, verse 2, that they used to be of the Gentiles, meaning the goyim, which merely means nations. The word Gentile, by the way, is not a despective term. It isn't a put-down like wop or kike or something it is just goyim of the nations the word goyim merely means man mankind goyim the nations that's what it literally means carried away under these dumb idols and that of course was true they were lost in the greek and the roman idolatry even as ye were led wherefore i give you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of god calleth jesus anathema or accursed and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord and acknowledge that and believe it, but by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are differences, diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which works all or works everything and everybody. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For the one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. Sometimes you recognize that. There may be people, I can think of one or two that I've known, that were farmers or that were cattlemen. And that were very, very wise. Older people who had been to the school of hard knocks, who may not have had that much of this world's education, but they were people who understood their Bible and especially the book of Proverbs. And they were people who could give good advice and who had the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. And there are those who are brilliant, who have a high IQ, But this is not only that which can be apprehended because of natural ability or because of hereditary ability, but because of God's added spiritual gifts. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. I wish that that gift was in God's church today. As I've said for years, I would beat a path to the door of any individual, male or female, that had that gift with my two deaf sons in a minute if we had the gift of healing to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of languages, to another the interpretation of languages. But all these works that one and self same spirit dividing, that is distributing to every man individually as he will, for as the body is one, now talking about the human physical body, hands, feet, heads, ears, eyes, legs, etc. And all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, whether we're bond or free, and have been made to drink of one Spirit. Then he goes through the analogy of how because one portion of the body feels it isn't the part that is the most visible, or the most beautiful, it feels like it's not part of the body. And I'll skip over that part to come to verse... 26. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, as I think God's people did when they learned of that tragedy that struck the Throgmorton family on the way to the Feast of Tabernacles. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular, and God has set some in the church. First, apostles. And the last apostle died when John died, or maybe even when Polycarp died, or some of the others. And to be an apostle, as the Apostle Paul said, Have I not seen Christ? Do not think for a minute the word apostle has any great, lofty, egocentric, powerful meaning or significance. It doesn't. It merely means one sent. It means an errand boy. That's all it means. Christ said to them, Go ye, thus sending them. And the word apostle merely meant those who were sent. Now, I know that over decades that has been made in some people's minds, to loom as a gigantic office with great rank, not a bit unlike a pope, because the very next office below Christ in the church was supposed to be that of apostle. Not true. That's not what it meant. Never what it meant, as we will see a little later on. Secondarily, prophets, and there were female prophets. Remember Anna, the prophetess who came up to Paul to tell him that if he went down there to Jerusalem, he was likely to be arrested? There were prophetesses as well as prophets. Again, not a rank, a function. God's Holy Spirit exercising a gift, which was a function, which was a service, performing a service to different people in the church. Thirdly, teachers. Where's the rank in that? female and male alike educated they understand the bible the word of god and all kinds of other subjects that they can bring in because the bible is merely the guidebook it is not the sum total of all knowledge it is not intended to be it is a handbook from god about his creation as to how uh, why we are here and where we are going and how we're supposed to get there and it is not supposed to be the last word on everything from wiring telephonic switchboards to uh, computer programming So there are teachers after that miracles then gifts of healings helps what is a help somebody who's helping somebody do what well anything from ushering to parking cars to helping a little old lady across the street to serving beans in the line when it's a potluck day I suppose but helps governments sure there has to be leadership and there has to be organization or you're going to have nothing but chaos, and God is not the author of chaos or of confusion, but the author of peace, is in all churches of the saints. Diversities of languages. Are all apostles? Obviously not. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, what we're going to do, I want you to, to, to draw a big circle in your mind, and that big circle is the ministry. But before you put any connotation on the ministry that comes from any other church, be it the parent church or this organization or any other anywhere in the world, let me explain the word minister only means what it means, and it means servant. No matter what you think, and many of us have been absolutely brainwashed for decades of our lives that when somebody says, I am a minister of Jesus Christ, that is a high powerful office of rank and power and authority but how stupid it would sound if someone said I am a servant of the church just takes all that connotation away from it doesn't it well the word merely means a servant one who serves it does not mean an egocentric autocratic little Lord Fauntleroy conscious of his great vain power at all. Now, within the service to the church, people who are serving the brethren, who are helping, who are helping govern, helping set up chairs, helping park, helping serve beans in the line at potluck, helping little old ladies, helping widows, helping the poor, helping the sick, visiting someone in the hospital, whatever they are doing to help a brother are Elders. Let's turn to first Peter, the fifth chapter. First Peter, the fifth chapter. There are two words that are used here. Peter uses a word which is called sum presbyteros uh, or presbyteros or however you pronounce it in the Greek language of the presbytery. And the next word he uses is merely presbyter. And he calls himself an older elder, a mature or a, a, a sage or wise old elder. Chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. Two different words. The elders whom I exhort, that word is presbyters. When he says, I am also an elder, it is sum presbyter, or older elder. Who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory, that shall be revealed. Notice that he, like Paul, Paul said, have I not seen Christ? are you not the seal of mine apostleship in the Lord notice that Peter says a witness of the sufferings of Christ they had to have been with Christ personally they had to have been sent by Christ and that's what apostle meant. it was not an office it was a function it was a service it was a job It was an appointment to do something, which was to preach the gospel to whole regions, whole nations, as Peter was sent to the Jews and as Paul was sent to the Gentiles. It was not a great rank at all, but a function or an office. And Peter said, I am an elder. And he said, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for reward, filthy lucre, or money, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage would that ministers could remember that, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise you younger, meaning younger elders, submit yourselves unto the elder, elder elders, older elders." And that's all the term meant. Now, the term elder came from ancient Israel. It came from the local communities of ancient Israel, where the elders were a body of, like a series of counselors, administrators of a local community, who were older men, who were responsible men, in a patriarchal society, who sat always at the gate, and it was just like a bench before whom people would come for litigation. And they would decide between various problems and so on as to whose ox did this or whose landmark was where and whose inheritance belonged to whom. And these elders were merely older men that were probably grandfathers and great-grandfathers with white beards and white hair, who were wise because of their years and their experience. And when the early church started, there were elders all over the towns of Israel. And when some of those men were converted and were baptized, they had been elders for the last 8, 10, 12, 16 years or whatever. And just because they were now servants of the church, they were still elders. Everybody in Israel understood what an elder was. It's like saying an assistant mayor or a mayor or an alderman, or an alderman comes in the same term, by the way, and was just an older man that served in the community, and so elder was not a high office that was put on an 18 year old fresh out of college to go out and and uh, browbeat a lot of 55 and 60 year old farmers and heads of businesses and, and housewives and grandmothers but instead was the recognition of a man who was much older, who was wise, who was mature who was converted, who had a knowledge of God's Word. So he is saying here that there were those who were a little younger And that they had to recognize, though they were, quote, equal in rank, and it's not even rank we're talking about, but function or service, that they ought to defer to the older gentleman because of simple etiquette, deference, respect, love, God's Holy Spirit. And he says, yea, all of you be subject one to another. So even the elder defers to the younger, and the younger defers to the elder. Now, like in the analogy I gave about marriage back some weeks ago, marriage is not a 50-50 proposition, or else you've got a lot lot of argument about where those two responsibilities collide. But if it's 100% and 100%, you've got a lot of overlap. The same thing is true in the ministry. If every person in the service of the church is humble and equally submissive to the other, You've got 100% room for overlap, and you have no problems. Now, if every human individual in God's church would always want to do the same thing and do it the same way, have a meeting at the same place, at the same time, serve the same kind of menu, have the same kind of song service, listen to the same kind of sermon, listen to the same tape or whatever, there would be no need for anybody to make a decision if it all just happened automatically. But you see, government is when there is a difference of opinion, and somebody has to decide. It's that way in a family. It's that way in a business. If you start the business, are you the boss? If you go and register and incorporate as a business, and you start the business, and you take the risk, and you put out the sweat and the effort, and as we say, the blood, sweat, and tears, and you build up a business. Maybe you build up a window-washing business like my wife's brother did in, uh, in Dallas until he had a whole lot of buildings and a whole lot of people working for him until his wife, who was a girl Friday and secretary to the head of a large college up there, actually came home and had to get a PC and stay there full time just to take care of their contracts and their payroll. And they build up a family business. Does he have a right to be the boss of that business? Or is some person that walks in off the street with a mop and a bucket the boss of the business? Who makes a decision? Obviously there has to be order. And there has to be someone in some position of authority to make a decision. That's not being a lord over God's heritage to say, brethren, what do you think? Why don't all of us decide to get together for a potluck next Friday night? If a majority of the people say, I don't think I can make it, the pastor probably ought to say, fine, let's put it off the following Friday night. There's no problem with that if it is done in love in the way that God's word urges that we do it. In verse 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And I want to remind every one of you younger men that I'm going to be 63 on the 9th of February, and I'm going to expect some respect out of... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Now, a lot of you don't know who in the world I was talking about there, do you? (laughs) Do you even know who in the world I was trying to imitate? See, there's some people here that never were in the worldwide church of God, so they don't know unless they heard my dad on radio or TV who I was trying to imitate there. But I'm just kidding. And be clothed with humility, like a man that said to me in Jerusalem one time that he majored in humility in college. He was a, he was a minister of some church or other who was down there. but he, It was funny, I hadn't forgotten that. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Peter didn't say upon me, but upon him, upon God. Now, be sober, be vigilant. I assume you are. I assume that you watch the many, many of the same newscasts that I do. You watch Good Morning America, or Today, or, some, or CNN. I assume you read many of the same magazines. I assume that when I tell you about the raging debate about the first big initiative with the Clinton administration, that you're well aware of it before I even tell you about it, and you've heard it, and you've heard it, and you've heard it for the last couple of weeks. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. If we were sitting in this room right now and we knew a circus train overturned outside and the lions had gotten out, and somebody came running in here with a rifle and said everybody stay where you are we got a couple of ravenous lions running around the streets you'd be very very careful about how you got from here to your car well are you careful when you get out of your car a 7-eleven at night to go in and buy some milk and eggs for breakfast the next morning are you careful when you are flipping that little remote control going around the channels to watch television are you careful when you select a book or a magazine are you careful when you decide to go to a movie Are you careful on behalf behalf of your children? Are you careful remembering Lot's wife of what it is that you ingest and that you partake of that is available out here in this rotten, sin, sick, filthy, depraved society? It hurts me to see our nation elect a man like Bill Clinton. I'm sorry, it just does. I go back to FDR, to Harry Truman, to Dwight Eisenhower, I remember hearing Winston Churchill's speeches when I was a boy over BBC, and I remember statesmen, I remember men to whom character was the whole thing. Not compromise, not a politician's expediency, not waffling and being on both sides of any issue, which way are they going to go, I'll go that way. But a man that said, here's the principle, I'm going to stand on it, and I'm going to die for it if necessary, because it's right. Like Eisenhower said, know you're right and then go ahead. You don't send three million men into Europe. You don't send hundreds of thousands of men to invade the beaches at Normandy without deciding you're right. You don't delay them for a full day out there in a storm-tossed Atlantic out there in the middle of the British Channel, knowing the Germans may find out they're there at any time the largest largest uh, seaborne armada in the history of the world, and then have them go in the next day when the weather is still so rough that many of the guys have practiced in the nice calm lakes up there at Loch Ness northern scotland in their tanks with the inflatable rubber girdle around them trying to float tanks ashore went off the ramps in those rough seas and because the seas had, you know were going to come over that stuff an awful lot of those guys drove tanks straight off and went plop down to the bottom about a hundred feet and drowned you don't send men like the 82nd and 101st airborne to jump into those flooded marshes over there in normandy and just drown like rats and know that you're going to lose thousands of men without deciding in advance that you've got to stand on a principle and make a decision and then take the guff if it's the wrong one. Now, here's a man that was over there demonstrating against our involvement in Vietnam, and I also think it was an immoral war. I also was against that war. I also disagreed with the government getting involved in it, and especially with trying to micromanage it from the Situation Room in the White House with LBJ picking out the daily targets. I thought it was unconscionable, and to me, he was virtually a war criminal, sending men to their deaths. But I wasn't going to demonstrate against it because the Bible tells me, according to Romans 13, that those people are in positions of authority and they make those decisions, then we just have to abide by them. I think it is... Shocking. I don't know that Mr. Bill Clinton, our president, President Clinton, is going to be the last president of the United States before we go all the way down into the cesspool. But he's certainly taking us one great big giant stride in that direction. I'm writing an article, What Does God Say About Gays and Lesbians? And Ron Dart, I found out, I didn't know, but he started on an article by a similar title on the very same day. So if you think we haven't been talking about it and thinking about it, think again. I'm going to encourage him. Go ahead and write your article. I'll go ahead and write mine. Maybe a little overlap in some places, but we'll give him a double-barreled, double-barreled shot. <laughs> be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, as he says in James 4:7, resist the devil and he shall flee from you, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same problems, the same trials, the same temptations, Temptation to get mad at somebody, to get your feelings hurt, to be feeling picked on or put upon, to somehow get crossways doctrinally. Nearly always it's an interpersonal uh, clash of personalities the way somebody does or says something that bothers people more than anything else, I find. But the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You ought to read the big sheet of material I got from the Philippines the other day of names you would never recognize. They're your brethren and sisters and mine. And several of them have decided to fight over a thing that got started over a printing press. And two or three of them have decided to resign. It makes me want to write a letter like Paul, you know, oh my dear children, uh, how I would that Christ could be formed all over again within you, etc. And, uh, and say, please don't fight. But as I've said, I figure if free people are cast adrift in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, they're going to fight over who gets to steer. And uh, you, just, you just can't seem to have a complete meeting of minds in any given group of even two or three people where they just get along together automatically. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory, and we can't imagine the glory that awaits us at the time of our resurrection or our instantaneous change. It is unimaginable. I've had a very wonderful experience in the last several months, last year, year and a half, of being able at my age to take up the game of basketball again and playing basketball about four days a week and running up and down the court. We played full court the other night. And uh, I'm racing up and down that basketball court and staying up with some of these younger people. Some of them are only in their late teens. And uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. And it made me just think. The time is going to come when I won't be able to do that anymore. I'm nearing 63. Now, already it's been, I flew a 310 once a few months ago up to Tulsa, but it's been probably a year and a half since I had a hold of an aircraft, and I've got over 7,000 hours flying over 68 different types of aircraft and 11 types of jets, and flew a Falcon jet for about nine years and flew it all over the world, and I miss being able to shove the throttles of a G2 all the way to the firewall and feel that thrusting power send me up to 39, 41,000 feet and look down at the world down there below and realize I'm in command of this ship and I know how to fly it. That is something that I probably cannot do anymore. The time is going to come when I won't be able to pass a first-class physical. The time is going to come when, as I'm 65, 66, 70 years of age, I won't be able to run up and down at basketball court anymore. So when I think of God's promise he says, how would you like to rise up with wings like an eagle? And how would you like to have eternal youth and eternal strength and to be young and full of energy and full of strength and power, just like it is flowing from you for all eternity, where this aging business is just gone? You don't get old anymore. You don't hurt anymore. You don't get out of bed like I do and groan and step real lightly because your old feet hurt when you first put your weight on You don't hurt. You don't have aches and pains. You're eternally youthful. You could preach a sermon about the meaning of glory and try to define, and we'd only barely glimpse a little bit of what we're trying to talk about of uh, what it would mean to be in God's kingdom. And all we got to do is be good. Be good people and love one another. Do what God says in His Word don't bicker, and don't slander, and don't fight, but just cling to one another in love and be God's people and be good people and we don't have to have an autocratic shouting, domineering, egocentric priest of some kind to make every one of our little choices for us. We as brethren can cooperate together with helps, governments, administrations, deaconesses, deacons, teachers, and we can Be God's church and stay together.